You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The Girl in the Storm There once was a girl who was lost in a storm. She wandered this way and that, this way and that, trying to find a way home. But the sky was too dark and the rain too fierce. All the girl did was go in circles. Then, suddenly, there were arms around her. Strong arms, good strong arms. And they picked the girl up and carried her away. When she woke, she was lying in bed. It was a warm bed, very warm, by a roaring fire. The blankets were soft and she was dry. She looked around the room. There were paintings on the walls. There was a hot cup of tea on the nightstand. Hello, called the girl. Hello, hello. A young man appeared in the doorway. He looked down at the girl with a kind, quiet smile. Feel better, he said, and she did. The girl stayed with the man for quite a long time until she had all her strength back. I guess it's time for me to go home, she said, and started to gather her clothes. But when she got to the door, she saw the rain was still falling. If anything, it was falling even harder. So she took off her clothes again and went back to bed and lay in the man's arms a little longer. This went on for many, many years, and eventually the girl grew very old. And then one day she discovered on the wall by the door the switch that turned the rain on and off. She stood there staring at the beautiful day outside and then down at the simple little switch. She listened as the birds flew by the window singing, and then she turned and went back to bed. In the night, that night, the man woke up. Did the rain stop, he said. I dreamt it did. And the girl put her arms around the man and held him tight. It may have, she said, but it's all right. Ben Lurie's work has appeared in The New Yorker, Gargoyle Magazine, and The Antioch Review, and other publications. He's a screenwriter who's worked with Jodie Foster and Alex Proyas. His new collection of short stories is Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben, this is such a wonderful book, and these stories are so unusual. I'd like you to just talk about your development as a writer. When did you start? What what first got you reading and then what first got you writing uh well what got me reading was it was the only thing there was to do when i was growing up uh we didn't have a television in our house um well we did when i was very little apparently and then supposedly it was stolen was what my parents told us um and my parents were both english professors and we lived kind of out on the edge of town away from everybody else and there was nothing there except books so my sister and I just always read. That was all there was to do. What, when you were like a little kid, what books did you read? Oh, everything. I think my favorite was always, well, I liked Sylvester and the Magic Pebble a whole lot. I don't know if you remember that no, one. No, no. Oh, it's a William Stieg book mm. about a, a donkey who um, finds a magic pebble, which uh, grants him wishes. That but sounds the, familiar. I mean. Yeah. Oh, no, it was, mm. it was, yeah, it was good. Um, I but then he, he meets a lion and he wishes that he was a rock and he turns into a rock and, the, and he loses the pebble and then he can't, <laughs> he can't become a donkey again. 
Um, actually, I, I tend to write Sylvester and the Magic Pebble a lot. A lot of times when I sit down to write, immediately pebbles start appearing <laughs> in my stories. <laughs> and then I write the whole story and I get to it and I say, oh, no, I wrote Sylvester and the Magic Pebble again. <laughs> I like that. That's true. There's, yeah. well, <laughs> it's a real problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my other favorite was Danny, the Champion of the World mm. by uh, Roald Dahl. Mm which is a scary book. Roald Dahl is kind of a scary man in a very yeah. deep way. What's so interesting about his work, and I think your work shares this, is that there's a kind of a lighthearted touch to it, and it seems charming and kind of friendly, but it's like somewhere buried in there are a lot of really sharp razor blades. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I uh, try not to learn too much about writers that I like because they always turn out to be horrible, horrible people. But um, my sister reads constantly biographies about writers, and she just read one about Roald Dahl, and he sounded terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll judge the man by his work and say, yes. that work kicked my butt and many other people's yeah. as well. Yeah, definitely. Now, as a writer, were you, did, as a kid, were you writing? I mean, with two English professors in the house, it seems like it'd be kind of hard to avoid, huh? Um, well, yeah, I mean, my parents tell me that I always was writing and that they always thought that I was a writer. I never really thought of it that way. I really never, I mean, I never wrote a story in my life up until maybe five years ago, with the exception of maybe one in college, which mm -hmm. wasn't even really a story, you know, just sort of a character sketch. Um, mostly when I was little, I just read and ran around in the woods <laughs> pretending to be an elf and, uh, played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. That sounds pretty familiar. Yes. <laughs> I think I spent a lot of my childhood as a, one of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Red Martians. Mm -hmm. People yes. thought it was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, uh, if you never wrote stories till five years ago, how, how, you seem to be an adept storyteller. So talk about uh, getting into a, a career in screenwriting. That seems that's, that stories are at the heart of good screenplays, and there seems to be a dearth of that, to be honest, in, in the movies these days. Yeah, it's strange. Um, well, I went, to, uh, I went to AFI for screenwriting. I really wanted to go for directing what I wanted. I always wanted to be a director. Mm -hmm. And, but I could not get into film school as a director because I didn't really have a reel. And I knew that I could get in as a writer because I always wrote good dialogue and I could write scenes. Um, but I never really had any stories. I could never really think of a story. Mm -hmm. And so I went to film school for two years and studied screenwriting. And when I finished, I was, I was certain that I did not want to be a screenwriter. <laughs> that, that was what I learned in film school. And so I immediately enrolled at UCLA and started taking classes to go back to school to become an English professor. And while I was doing that, a friend of mine from film school who had become a screenwriter, he'd sold a screenplay and then he couldn't actually finish it. And so he asked me if I would help him finish it. And I said, sure, and I did, and then we handed it in, and he put my name on it, mm -hmm. which created a big sort of legal brouhaha, and all of a sudden I was a screenwriter. Oh, and it, it, <laughs> what about, there was a lot of union and... and uh... It was uh, the, the producers and his agents, like everyone, everyone was very concerned because I was not on any of the contracts or anything like oh, that. Oh, God. And uh, everybody thought I was going to sue them, and... Um, 
I don't know. They just sort of... Seven savage lawyers from Beverly Hills yes. were going to pick their bones clean. Yes. I got a lot of very angry phone calls. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't, I just, I was just, you know, doing someone a favor. But then out of all this, suddenly I, I became a screenwriter and we became a writing partnership. And the way it worked was that um, the stories were always his because he actually had stories. Mm -hmm. And then we'd sort of sit down and kind of iron out an outline and then... Um, the actual writing I would always kind of do, and then we'd sort of talk things over and edit through together. But I never really had any idea of what kind of stories I wanted to tell. I just never had stories. I didn't know like where they came from. I always thought they always sort of came whole, like out of the air, you just mm -hmm. somehow knew. Like something that happens in one of your stories. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did that for a couple of years and it was very frustrating um, partially because my writing partner and I had completely different taste in in movies. Well, what what did he like and what did you like? Well, I've always liked funny movies and scary movies. You know, mm -hmm. I like comedy and horror. And he was not into either of those things. And he was a big fan of um, The English Patient and um, the movie Chicago. He, yeah, I'm more with the, I'm more with uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre yes, and the Blues that, Brothers. Right, the Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre was actually sort of the breaking point because they came, they're doing a remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure, and, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, and they came and offered us the job. I mean, they they asked us to come in and talk about what we would do with that idea, and he just said no. He said he had no interest, and I was very confused. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know what we were doing there at that point. Mm. Anyway. I didn't, well, that, because I remember I had poo-pooed that movie for so many years, the original version, and when I finally saw the original version, I really liked it. It's not as nearly as horrible as it had been made out to be, and I thought the, the vibe of it had a really good, to my mind, Flannery O'Connor feel. <laughs> if you've ever, this is kind of not unlike a, a good man is hard to find. Yeah. It has a similar thing. You know, a good man is hard to find. A nice family goes out in the woods and gets killed one by one. Yeah. <laughs> this is a... Yeah. No, that's a great movie. I mean, it, yes. So... That, that was one of the high points of my life when they asked us if we would consider doing that. And then he said no. Hmm. So anyway, after that, we sort of broke up as a partnership and I went off and, and tried to write some screenplays, but I just didn't know how to tell a story. Um, so it was at that point that I sort of became really interested in stories and how they worked and started thinking very hard about them really for the first time, which was ironic seeing how I'd been a screenwriter for five or six years and, <laughs> and had an MFA in screenwriting. Um, and so when I did that, I went and took a class on short story writing, which was being taught at a local bookstore the Mystery and Imagination Bookstore in Glendale. Oh, yeah, they're great. Actually, I did a gig there with uh, Rolling Darkness Review. Oh, so you know Dennis Etchison. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. one of my favorite writers. I interviewed him. He's, he's, I think, one of the modern American masters of the short story. I noticed you mentioned mm -hmm. him. Is, is he the guy who taught this class? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. He is, I can see why the <laughs> affinity, and I can see why you wanted to learn from him. He's, he's a fantastic writer. Yeah, he's great. Seriously, under under appreciated in the literary landscape, I think too. Mm -hmm. that, that do you have his the screen press editions of his books? No. Oh, uh, go on Bookfinder and seek them out. They're illustrated by J.K. Potter and uh, Harry O. Morris, some of them, and they're just absolutely 
the finest, most beautiful books you can hope to own. And, they, and these guys do these black and white collage illustrations that really capture the, the feel of his work. Oh, I've seen some of those, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, so tell us about, so you were, you're in a class with Dennis Atchison now. So mm-hmm. how, how, how did that work for you? I guess good. Yeah, it was great. Super, super. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, <clears throat> he talks a lot and he tells a lot of great stories. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, it was him sort of just talking about his life. It wasn't really a workshop class. You mm-hmm. know, it was just kind of him talking about stories. Every week he'd come in and he'd read a story that he liked and talk about it a bit. And he had a lot of guests come in. George Clayton Johnson came a lot. Wow. And Glenn Hirschberg, I remember, and Pete Atkins. And actually the guy who got the job writing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. <laughs> really? Yeah. I love Pete Atkins and Glenn. They do, they're the Rolling Darkness Review. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're a lot of fun. So who who is it that got the job? You know, I don't remember his name. And I really liked him, too. He's the guy who wrote the movie The Mechanic with Christian Bale. Oh, oh, interesting. So you're in this class. Did, did you start writing stories then? Was that when you first started writing? That was when I started. Um, what happened is at some point someone asked him how he went about um, plotting out his stories. And he, he just, you know, looked very confused. And he was like, I don't, you know, I don't plot them out. <laughs> I write them. And uh, he said that what he did was he just sat down without any ideas and just wrote the first thing that came into his mind and that was the beginning of the story and then he just sort of followed it on through there until he came to the end and that that was how he wrote stories and that everything sort of came from an unconscious place and the process of writing the story was in working out what was going on there and resolving it which just sounded insane to me coming from screenwriting where we'd sit around for months with these index cards with all these scenes on them that we just knew we had to somehow jam together into some kind of semi-coherent story. Um, But I decided that I would try it, so I went home and, and wrote a story. And then I wrote another one and another one, and they just sort of started coming. And it was just the craziest thing that had ever happened. Well, it's so interesting to talk to you about story because you have such, you have a totally unique sense of what story is, I think. I, there's nobody who writes like you I don't, that I've ever read. There are some close approximations, but I think they're somewhat irrelevant. It's easier to just have people read your story than to try to say he's like this or this. And, and it's, it's interesting that this came out of your struggle with trying to understand what story was. Mm. So I, I'm wondering, tell me a little bit about your experience of this, trying to, you know, suss out what, what story is, because you clearly, you say you could write good dialogue and stuff. And so I think out of this struggle, what you, it sounds like what you had to do is just reach, as Edgerson said, into your unconscious, subconscious. Yeah, well, that was all, I don't know, there's so much of it that really is, that comes from the unconscious, and I don't have, like, any control over, and I don't even think about it all. I just, I mean, people are often asking me about this, what the stories are about themselves, I mean, mm-hmm. thematically, and um, or what they mean, and I never have any idea. You know, I don't feel at all responsible for even what the stories are about. Like how I was saying that I always write Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. You know, like things, they, they just sort of come out. The images just sort of come out. And then I'm just mainly dealing in images and how the characters feel about 
objects and events that they encounter, but what those objects and events are, it's like I'm not really responsible for them. I don't know. But the, the big thing that happened when I finally kind of figured it out, whatever, is that I realized that you just, uh, that stories are really just about people who, who want things and you just have to follow them as they try and get them. And for so long, I was really fixated on, on character, character as sort of like a big uh, conglomeration of like idiosyncrasies or like particularities about people, you know, how they dressed or how they talked or what their job was, or I don't know, their whole situation. Um, but never, but they were never active. They were never doing anything in any of the quote stories that I used to try to write. They would just sort of be very specific people kind of sitting around waiting for a story to happen. Uh -huh. And uh, once I kind of forgot just all about that and just concentrated entirely on what, what people wanted and what was standing in their way and sort of like the natural... <laughs> natural opposition to mm -hmm. whatever it was that characters wanted, then stories just sort of naturally arise out of that. Well, your stories, um, there's, a, to a degree, there's, depending on how one looks at it, there's either a dearth of people in your stories or a lot of everything is about people, but you turn people into houses and oceans and monsters and octopuses and all sorts of peculiar things you there's a lot of transformation yeah. i think that goes on in your work and uh this all just happens on a completely unconscious level you sit down in front of, of the computer i presume type out a sentence and then you and that sentence you're ready to go yeah well usually what that sentence is it usually starts with one image or object or you know like a, a crown one of them is about a crown, or mm -hmm. one of them is, a, well, there are a lot about rocks and pebbles, but those, <laughs> I didn't actually include those in the book. Um, one is about a, a box, and one is about a book, you know, one is about a television, and so these, like, I'll get an image, and then there's sort of a relationship that I feel to the image, you know, like there's a crown, and you're like, oh, what's the crown? And so then the the story starts with someone finding crown and sort of wondering what the crown is, mm -hmm. you know, or the, or the one about the box involves some some boys seeing that this man has this mysterious box that he carries everywhere and wondering what he has in the box. And then the story is about kids trying to figure out what's in the box. <laughs> um, other ones are about uh, people finding things and being afraid of them. So they begin by running away from them. And then generally those things chase after them. <laughs> It's just, it's just the relationship to the original object. And then when the transformations tend to happen, they tend to happen at the end when the, the, the main character sort of has to finally meet that object. Mm -hmm. And I think because they are, you know, objects and symbols, things tend to transform in a magical way because that's really the only way you can resolve a human with a symbol. That you're... Your stories are, are very unusual. <clears throat> unusual. So you you did you build up a big pile of them and just start firing them off to, to all these magazines? I mean, getting published in the New Yorker is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's uh, yeah. so. <laughs> how many so how many how many did you fire at them before they said uncle? 
Um, not that many, oh, actually. Really? Yeah. That's well, fantastic. It's nice to know that they're kind of listening to. Well, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't me at that point. That was my agent. Oh. And yes, my agent got that to the New Yorker. I would, I would never have been able to do that by myself. That was the main thing I learned is that you need an agent. So, so you had did you have an agent from your screenwriting time, or was this somebody you just picked up after uh, afterwards? No, this was actually a friend of mine from college. Hmm. I've known for about twenty years, and she was not an agent. She um, she works in books she's a, a rare book and manuscript dealer in new york mm-hmm. and so she knows a lot of editors and publishers and writers and she'd been wanting to sort of parlay that into a career as a agent and so she asked if she could represent my stuff and i said sure and then you know a month later i had a story in the new yorker and a book deal wow so, that's amazing yeah. yeah but before that i i mean i wrote uh when i first started writing this book I conceived it as a book of 101 stories. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote stories just constantly, constantly, constantly until I had that book of 101 stories. And I never sent any stories out. 101 California Nights. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, I never submitted any stories until the book was done as Mm. a whole. Um, So I wrote, I mean, hundreds of stories. And I was constantly putting them in and taking them out until I got to a point where I I just loved every story that was there, and they all made sense, and I could not think of removing one from mm-hmm. the 101. And then at that point, I knew I was done. And then I started um, trying to get the book as a whole to people, and at the same time, I started submitting individual stories to magazines. So um, I sort of released all the stories <laughs> into the world at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I keep Spawning uh, salmon. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of them going out all at the same time. I keep, a, you know, an Excel spreadsheet oh, yeah, of, yeah. of every submission. And I I think I submitted something like 750 times before that one ended up in The New Yorker. Wow. I mean, a lot of them had gotten into other places. But it wasn't like, you know, I wrote some stories and oh, not, then they appeared in The New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, Tales of Overnight Success are greatly exaggerated. There's yeah. usually 10 or 20 years of work behind every yeah. guy who or gal who had makes it overnight yeah yeah and just submitting i mean just submitting was like a full-time job oh it's me. really it's, it's difficult now is it was it easier for you now because was it were a lot of the magazines taking electronic submissions in or were you still in the paper yeah it had pretty much switched over when i started there were still some and there still are some that don't take electronic submissions a lot of sort of the fancier literary journals hmm. don't well, the uh, electronic submissions is just a ten zillion times easier than the pen, pen and pencil, self-addressed, stamped envelope. Oh, yeah. God, it's just a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that uh, you, you, I see uh, in a lot of your stories are, you know, wish fulfillment. You know, the, the, and this I guess goes back to Sylvester and the magic pebble. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, I mean, do you as a, do you wish for things? Do you, I mean, as a person, do you wish for things? And do you, ha- have you like strive for things and had them go wrong? I mean, the, the, the it's a, a very, you know, the Twilight Zone dilemma. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of an example though. Um. 
I don't know. I'd actually never thought of them in terms of wish fulfillment. I guess there are a lot of love stories. There are a lot of love stories in the book. Well, The Crown, I thought, was a uh-huh. tale of, of wish fulfillment. And, yeah. you know, uh, China, you know, you might be careful. You might find what you're looking for, and mm-hmm. that might not prove to be such a good thing. Now, you know, uh, the thing about, I think, all of your stories is they put us immediately. You're, you have a very simple style. It's super transparent. And the stories are very, very short. What's the longest story in this book? How many words? Uh, 1,500. Wow. Well, actually, the one that was in The New Yorker that's included at the end is, I think, 3,000. But most of them are around 700 words, I think. Okay. That's a, that's a, that's a tight that's a tight format to work and that's not easy and you have a very simple prose style do you when you write these things out does the prose come out that simple from to begin with or do you have to just like you know uh was it michelangelo chip away the parts that aren't that aren't david no they just come out like that um you can't you 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 sculpt david from the inside out eh? people always ask me how i get things simplified like that and i they don't seem simplified to me they just i don't know um it's always seems strange to me like when you when you go out with people friends people are constantly telling each other stories mm-hmm. and everyone tells them pretty much the same way mm-hmm. i mean you tell them quickly you just say what happens sure you know? and along the way sometimes you make little jokes or you pause for emphasis or, or whatever but, but they're short, and then people know how to tell stories, and they know how stories should be told. But then it seems like as soon as you start writing them down, suddenly they balloon into these gigantic things where people are describing details that no one would ever want to hear about when you're actually telling a story. Um, so I just try to keep as, as close as I can to how I would actually tell the story if I was telling it. I get, yeah, they do have a very conversational tone. It's like yeah. it is like listening to somebody tell a really good story. On, however, your stories are really, really weird. <laughs> I mean, there's just no doubt about it. That this book is, you know, is is pretty high on the weird scale. And I'm wondering, do you, as a as a news consumer, do you like read? Uh, I mean. Uh, for, do you scan the news for weird stories? Not that you necessarily use them, but just to find out about weird. I mean, you know, like do you like. There's a few stories in here about UFOs and aliens and flying saucers and stuff. Are you a flying saucer buff? No, not really. I, I used to watch the X Files a lot. I mean, I was a Star Wars kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been obsessed with space and you know ancient mysteries in search of pyramids and Atlantis. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, yeah. Jack the Ripper. Yeah, um, I don't really look for weird things, but I yeah I tend to find them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have to look much further than between your own ears, my friend. <laughs> I'd say there's a there's a fair amount of oddness going on in there. Yeah. Um, the way your stories work, in a sense, you have a, such a unique sense of telling a story beyond that kind of conversational tone. It's because your stories, I think, start and end in different places. But somewhere in there, 
and this is what makes reading them so enjoyable. The reader has to make a really like kind of advanced um, creative leap. You ask the reader to do some really creative thinking. And I'm guessing that's not something that you consciously do. You don't think, okay, now here's the part where the reader has to, you know, figure out why an octopus is living in an apartment or whatever, you know, or how we get from A to B because that's the real pleasure of the story. Do you, so this, does this happen? I mean, when you write stories, do you do a lot of revision? Do you sometimes find that, you know, you go in one direction and say, oh, no, that's not right? Um, usually... I mean, yes, is I do a lot of revision, but the revision is almost always limited to the ending, to the third act of the story. Usually the stories come out, um, I mean, they come out fast. Usually these stories are written, the first draft is usually written in like 15 or 20 minutes. And the events of the story usually don't change from that first draft until the final. I mean, I write sometimes 50 or 60 totally different <laughs> endings to these stories different drafts but usually the events of the story don't change at all except for that last third act it, um yeah it's always hard to figure out how to how things are supposed to end now you know just on the logistics of this in terms of putting this on a computer do you have like 50 or 60 versions of some of these stories like you know uh the the girl in the storm v1.0 v2.0 v50.0 oh yeah Okay, so you have yeah. must have literally thousands of of versions of this, these stories. Yes, I do on I, your hard drive. Yes, <laughs> somewhere, and I'm, and I'm very concerned about my hard drive because I haven't backed anything up. Well, <laughs> that's scary. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk afterwards about that. Okay. Um, one of the things that that interests me is have you ever gone back and said, wow, you know, I published this one, but, you know, gone back to rediscover different versions of us, older versions of a story and thought, wow, that went in a different direction. I could just take this, what, this material here and refashion it into something completely different. I mean, has an old version of another one story yielded a new version of a new story? No. Um, old versions of stories have often changed into completely different versions of the same story. And, and a lot of these are published on the internet. Uh, well, a lot of other stories that I've written and a lot of them have endings that I don't like, mm. you know? Um, so I'm a lot more careful nowadays about what I actually send out and make sure, I make sure I've been sitting on the story for a couple of years and <laughs> I'm absolutely certain about the endings. Um, but no, I don't think anything has ever grown out of a, a story. You, you have a, a, an interesting sense. One of the things I love about a UFO, a love story, there's a part where, where somebody says, we don't know what's real anymore. <laughs> and I think after reading this, your book of stories, anybody who walks out and looks around is going to probably say pretty much the same thing. Well, good. Then my work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. This is like a, I, I'd say. This is the, this is uh, as as effective as many uh, psychoactive drugs, but far less uh, long term destructive. Maybe far in long term consequences. Maybe it's worse. But short term, you can still walk around and your eyes still work. It's <laughs> good. So uh, talk about. Uh, I mean. One of the things that, that I think is interesting is you do a lot of um, anthro 
anthropomorphizing. This happens in, in a, many, many of the stories. And it, makes, and it provides a really interesting uh, perspective because we have characters that are human and inhuman. And I'm wondering what this, you know, is there a person whom you think of as whom you turned into a house by the sea? Do you have a friend who became the house by the sea? Uh, well, there is, yeah. I mean, the house is definitely someone I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> really? But, but I wasn't thinking that when I wrote the story. You know, all these stories, they, they come out so fast and without any kind of planning that it's only after they're done that I look at them and I say, oh, I see what this story is about. But I never sit down and say, okay, well, I'm going to take my friend Joe and make him a moose and have him jump out of a plane. You know, I don't... <laughs> I don't. Um, did Joe end up jumping out of that plane? <laughs> yeah, he did. I love that moose. He's such a sweetheart. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the moose. The moose is actually the one story I've written that I am writing a sequel to. Really? Mm -hmm. I can't wait. Yeah. Well, let, <laughs> let me know when that comes out. I'll let my readers know too because I I love that damn. Moose. Um, did you ever write poetry? Because I think there's a lot here. I mean, the way you describe writing these stories, the, the prose style, and even the content um, are all very poetic. And, in not, and, and what's so great is that it's kind of anti-poetic. You don't like feel, I don't feel like you're being arch or kind of really artsy or artsy or any of that stuff. It just has the directness of great poetry. Hmm, thanks. Um, I don't... No, I've never written. Well, I wrote a poem once when I was like 13 or something. <laughs> it wasn't very good. Um, I mean, I read a lot of poetry and I like poetry, but, um, you know, I'm mostly interested in stories. So, uh, so I, yeah, I don't know how to answer that. A lot of times when I read the stories, people come up to me afterwards and they tell them tell me that they really like my poem. <laughs> 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 Do you, do you correct their perception? Uh, no, huh? not really. So, um, one time somebody came up and asked me what makes these stories as opposed to poems. And I said, well, if you call them poems, then no one will ever buy the book. <laughs> 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 Although really, I think it's more that, that they're, my emphasis is always on story and story mm -hmm. is what I'm interested in. I'm not really interested in language, which is what, poetry seems to mostly be about at least these days i mean i'm interested in it but only as a means to an end it's something you know language bothers me when it's bad in writing mm -hmm. i sort of take it for granted that it should be good but i don't want to concentrate on it while i'm reading you know well no you're well i think that uh language is very important to you and but you just use it very effectively and i think it means that a lot of poetry could benefit from to be quite honest i mean you your language and your both uh, your language and your stories i think what makes your book so good and your story so good is that the lang your language your sense of language and your sense of story are really in sync and what you're doing is aiming arrows directly at our subconscious and at our emotional hearts at places that don't really exist don't have any standard definition and you plant a little bomb there and then we go <laughs> and, and then our little brains go oh my god <laughs> i have to go say something sensible now <laughs> so 
So talk about, I mean, do you feel that way when you, after you do them? I mean, when you, when you finish writing a story like this, or are you in something of a daze? Well, usually I'm sobbing uncontrollably <laughs> by the time I actually find mm -hmm. the right ending. Yeah, that's how I know that I'm done with the story. How I found the right ending is when I burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> are those tears of joy or sorrow? Because a lot of the stories are very poignant. You have a great sense of poignancy. Uh, it's just, a, I think, a, it's um, tears of relief, mm. of a resolution. You know, it's like all these stories are basically just kind of a projection of an inner conflict, I think. Mm -hmm. And these are inner conflicts that are not resolved, which is why they tend to come out when I sit down to write. Um so the process of writing a story is always, it's sort of like dreaming that is then, that you then have to force to find the end of your dream and to resolve it properly and to figure out what it's about. And that's always really hard. And which is why the third act is always the hardest part because it's where the main character has to sort of take stock of things, figure out what they're doing wrong and act differently and then sort of accept the consequences. And that's really hard to do when you're working unconsciously. Um, so yeah, by the time I actually get there, you know, it's usually been a couple years of working on one of these stories, and it's Jeez. it's like a, a maze that I have built myself <laughs> and lived in for a couple years, and then finally, you know, you find your way out of the maze, and it's just a, a yes, it's a great relief. It seems like a therapeutic process. I know when I read these stories. They're, they feel very therapeutic to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, because the way they speak to an, a part of our mind that doesn't accept logic or regular speech, they're all very surreal and very peculiar. And, and the, the endings, which are all very effective, kind of like leave the reader like jumping off a cliff, an imaginative cliff, and are, you know, you're grasping you find some there's a sense of sense there that the reader has to you know make this emotional leap and it sounds like the stories which are therapeutic to the reader are also therapy to you as well oh yeah i'm much better now that i'm writing all the time <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not what i was saying <laughs> they, they they let you have your driver's license back yes uh -huh. <laughs> Um, you know, so you've used this term a couple times in the stories uh, about talking about your stories, and it's it's kind of almost shocking to hear you say this. The third act, hmm. when you're talking about a 700 word story, the third act is like 200 words, say, <laughs> <laughs> which is about what most people will, will take, you know, to order a drink at a bar. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a that's a pretty intense amount of architecture for for uh, such a a, thing, a small piece of writing, and I think that's maybe why they seem so strong. Hmm. Yeah. Well, when I don't know, it's it's not that strange, really. When you think about, I mean, any movie that you go to see comes from a screenplay, and all those screenplays had a treatment or a pitch that went into them, where somebody sat down and basically just told the producer or the studio what the movie was going to be about in pretty much a page or two pages and in in that treatment pretty much everything that's going to be in the final version of the movie is is there and it makes sense and when you finish the story it, it has an emotional effect and people understand what it's about and um, the act structure doesn't really have anything to do with the length you know it just has to do with 
um, what the characters want and uh, where they change and then what their new desire is and how that's resolved with, you know, fears that are holding them back. So it's not really, I don't know, acts aren't really a matter of length, just a matter of desires, really. Well, you make it seem also simple, and that's, <laughs> that's, one of the, that's one of the true signs of, I think, a really great writer, is somebody who you read these stories, and, I, I, they, and they seem very simple, and you think, in a sense, you might read this book and think, God, anybody could write this, but then you realize, oh my God, the skill that goes into the simplicity. I mean, that's what that's the real that's where real talent lies is to make something so transparent as you've done, especially something um, as as you know uh, imaginative, because you your stuff is so uh, I you know surreal imaginative. It, it, you put together a very this is something you put take very simple elements. And they're they're laid out with great simplicity. Yet the upshot of this is really really complicated. I mean, there's a very kind of complicated equation. And I, again, apparently this all happens in about fifteen minutes. <laughs> well, not the ending, <laughs> not the resolution of the equation. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't seem. I I don't. It doesn't. Stories just sort of have a way that they want to be told, and it's just sort of a matter of staying true to them. I don't, I don't know. I don't. It's not really complicated. It's just sort of hard sometimes <laughs> to figure them out. Well, I think you you are kind of like an M.C. Escher kind of guy. I mean, his his stuff in some ways was very simple, but when you looked at it, you could just go on forever. And, and yeah. there's certainly that in your stories. Now, um, are you working on more stories? How, have you thought about writing a novel or are you a screenplay or a play or um, for I'm, television? Or are you still doing work, you know, work for hire? Oh, no. I, I stopped doing screenwriting when I started writing this book. But I actually have started adapting that story, UFO, a love story about mm -hmm. the two kids. Um, adapting that into a screenplay with a friend of mine, which is almost done. So hopefully something will happen with that. Um, I started writing another book the day after I finished this book. And at first I thought it was just going to be more stories like this, but then somehow since this book was done, I felt like I was copying myself. So I decided I had to do something different. Mm -hmm. So I started writing... Um, a book about a town. It's, it's sort of like a collection of stories all told in first person, but about an actual place and about sort of fantastical tales like this, but are all taking place in one town. Sherwood Anderson style. Yeah. Sherwood sure. Anderson meets Hans Christian Anderson. Yeah. In the Twilight Zone. <laughs> in the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, there's a, a longer book that I have in mind. I wouldn't really call it a novel. Um, which is, I mean, I haven't written it, <laughs> but it, it's sort of like, I like to think of it as a circus. Mm. Uh, it's a, a lot of different things going on at once, involving many different characters, you know, trees and fish and people and octopi. <laughs> uh, 
You're not going to leave those, those cephalopods alone, are you? Are we, we going to get some squids, maybe, or a nautilus? I don't like squids. You don't like squids? No. Squids are creepy. Mm-hmm. Octopi are nice. Um, yeah, but I don't think I would ever write a novel, you know, about just some guy. <laughs> <laughs> no kitchen window epiphany novel from you. No, I don't think so. Not unless it's about the kitchen window having an epiphany. Right. That oh, that's, a, that's a good idea, actually. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Not, and it's not even that I wouldn't, you know, want to do it, because there are certainly books like that that I like, but I really just wouldn't know how mm. or why. <laughs> yeah. You've got a, a screenplay coming coming out, and uh, you're working on another set of uh, uh, short Sherwood Anderson style stuff. Um, as a writer, could you talk about you know um, some of your influences? I I was just thinking, you know, you, there's a story in here that's dedicated to Ray Bradbury, and you know, there's a kind of a what I like about this book is that it has a, a in some sense the feel of some genre fiction, but the genre has just, it's just been kind of distilled out. And I really like that sensibility because we get all the thrills of the weirdness of, you know, <laughs> the sea monster. What a great, creepy, creepy story. Oh, yeah. oh my God, terrorizing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like giving me nightmares. Uh, but again, it doesn't feel like that. Mm-hmm. Um influences well one of my well i don't know uh, so my favorite authors I, I love philip k dick although i'm not i don't really see a lot of his stuff in what i write but i just love his sort of unbounded imagination and how you turn each page and you have no idea what's going to happen on the next page um and a million things happen in every book but somehow they all feel like they belong you know he's very he's very tied down to um to real people mm-hmm. and and real feelings and and um, he never just flies off into falling in love with his ideas. He's always grounded in the emotions. Right. Um, and I really like Richard Brodigan a lot. Uh, I love his sense of play and his surrealism. He has a book called The Hawk Lion Monster. Mm. I don't know if you've read that. It's it's one of his later books. Which is uh, it's kind of like a Scooby Doo episode. If, if Mark Twain wrote a Scooby Doo episode, um, after smoking a lot of opium, I think that's one of my favorite books. It's it's this uh, classic Gothic kind of tale. Oh no, it's not. There's nothing classic about it. It's a western. It's a western, and it's um, it's impossible to tell what it is about. I mean, okay. I mean, the, the events are very simple. Um, but as to what it's about, I have no idea. It just seems completely surreal, but it really feels amazing as you read it. Mm. It's really probably my favorite book. Um, one of the one of the big influences I definitely see is the poetry of Stephen Crane. Mm. I don't know if you've ever read that. People don't tend to read his poetry. He's really famous for his stories, which are very realistic. But he wrote very very short, um, unrhymed, unmetered. Uh, kind of semi-allegorical poems, not even semi-allegorical, they're allegorical, and often they're only two or three or four lines long, and sometimes, you know, they're about the man, 
mm-hmm. with people with no names. Um, There's a lot of that in your book. I, I like that. A man, a woman. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's one of the style Phillips you have that, that is really enjoyable. You know, I, I, okay, a man. All right. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I stole that from Stephen Crane. Um, and they're very simple and clear, and they work through imagery. They don't tend to resolve. They're more like um, ideas for stories than full stories. Um, and I think Patricia Highsmith is probably the other one um, that I think about all the time, though I don't, I don't know how much of an influence she's really had, but um, there's just definitely something about her writing which is very sort of dreamlike, and you're definitely kind of locked into it the whole way through, um, through very kind of simple means. And they also have an aura of menace about them, which I really love. I've been speaking with Ben Laurie. His new collection of short stories is Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.